Uh, Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. That fellow right there, his name is Matthew Paris. He's British. He has been a member of Parliament. He has been and is, I think, uh, sort of a a personality, <laughs> as in he, he does political commentary, he writes, and so he's, he's kind of like, uh, you know, George Stephanopoulos or one of those kind of people in our society who you kind of know and they've kind of been in the government and they kind of talk about things and, and they kind of get a voice to talk about it because of who they are and what they've done. He's, uh, he's also an atheist and a gay person, Okay. And that's why when I read, I read a little story about this article some, when it came out a couple of years ago, and I went online, one of the great things on the internet, and downloaded the whole article. And here's the title of the article that that fellow wrote. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Yeah. Yeah. Missionaries, this is the byline, missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem, which is the crushing passivity of the people's mindset. Before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to the country that as a boy I knew as Nisiland. Nisiland. Today it's Malawi. And the Times Christmas Appeal, this is from the London Times, the Times Christmas Appeal includes a small British charity working there. Pump Aid, that's the name of the charity, helps rural communities to install a simple pump, letting people keep their village village wells sealed and clean. I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one that I've been trying to banish all my life. But an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood, it confounds my ideological beliefs, it stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and it has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now, a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism, he's not even talking about missionaries, but evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular charities, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. You know, I've never copied a sermon, and who'd have thought an atheist would preach this good? Yeah. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, 
do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist would see a mission hospital or a school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also transferred, it is also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. First then the observation. We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child, I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealing with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. And he goes on to talk about the fact that Christianity has transformed people in Africa, and in his mind, one of the chief transformations is simply the fact that they are not passive about their world. What he means by passive is this. He says there's a tendency among Africans to go, well, I know things aren't good, but that's just the way they are. Whereas he says the Christians look around and say, what can we do about this? How can we work on this? How can we make it better? How can we get after things? But he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's faith in Christ that changes people. And he hates that discovery. Isn't that amazing? And so what I want to share with you today is, is this, and, and please listen until I get to the point where I balance this. Okay? But this is what I want to say. Why did we send Ben Sutton to Africa? We sent him to Africa because the problem in Africa is sin. There has been billions of dollars sent to transform Africa by this country and many other Western and Eastern countries alike. You don't realize it, but that largest of all Asian countries is making a lot of investment and doing a lot of trade with African countries, and there's a lot of influence there. And yet most, or many of the countries of Africa still languish in poverty and political unrest, and try as they might, no one on the international stage has been able to diagnose the solution until this fellow. And so I, what I want to just say today and help you understand, why do we send Ben Sutton to Africa? We sent, them, we sent him there because the problem in Africa is sin. One of the great summaries of sin is from this passage here. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And you're familiar with this, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and so on. We don't see a whole lot of idolatry and witchcraft in this country. I mean, obviously that's a growing thing, but boy, you sure see it in Africa. Now, what I want you to focus on, though, is this little phrase right here. The works of the flesh. 
What this means is that every human being left to himself or herself will act in sin. And when those sinful human beings form communities, their culture, which is the norms of behavior accepted in the community, will reflect the sin from their heart. The drunkenness in Africa, which is socially acceptable, is due to sin. The multiple marriages which are acceptable in Africa are not from love or the need for offspring. They are from sin. The worshiping of all manner of objects is not a cultural pattern. It's an issue of sin. The abuse of power by political leaders on every level is sin. The acceptance of thievery as a way of life in Africa is not due to poverty. It's due to sin. The problems which hold back the societies of Africa are from sin. And here's the balance point. Of course, the problems in our own country are all from sin too. And the problems in our own lives are from sin as well. In our country, the investment bankers and the brokers and the loan makers who caused the recent economic woes were intent only on getting all the money they could in any way they could. And that is not capitalism, that is greed. And I'm not a socialist, but I understand the difference between sinfully motivated greed and just trying to put in a good day's work. The push in our country to accept all kinds of sexual behavior as normal is not tolerance. It's sin. The problem in Africa and America and in our lives as individuals is sin. But there's a characteristic of sin. You know, I didn't tell you anything you didn't just know. But there's a characteristic of sin that we need to more fully appreciate And that is this, the hidden danger of sin is enslavement. The hidden danger of sin is enslavement. The world's definition of freedom, you know, our American world in particular, is similar to the one from Webster's Dictionary, which means being able to act without hindrance. Commonly, we might say freedom is the ability to do what you want, when you want, where you want. I'm free, I have no restriction. But the truth is, we aren't free because sin is enslaving. I want to look at an example of the enslavement of sin from Scripture. You're probably familiar with this this fellow. His name is Judas. And we look, you know, we often look at Judas's terrible betrayal, but I want you to follow his path as the Scripture revealed it to us. In John 12, we read this, Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. And by the way, every time his name is mentioned in the New Testament, it says, the one who would betray him. And they did that so the other guy named Judas, who was one of the twelve, wouldn't get confused. How would you like that to be your last name? Yeah, David, that betrayed Christ, you know. Boy. One of his disciples, Judas, said this, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for a whole year's wages, 300 denarii, and given to the poor. This is when the lady came in and worshipped Christ by pouring this expensive oil on his feet and wiping her feet with her hair and so on as an act of worship. And Judas said, why didn't they sell this and give the money to the poor? 
This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. This is the beginning of Judas's problem, if we will, or the middle of his problem. And then we read this. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. And he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you, if I betray him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And we jump from there to the Last Supper. When Jesus was talking to the disciples, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son, to betray him. Now get this, folks. He was not possessed by the devil. The devil put a thought into Judas's heart the same way he puts thoughts into your heart. He does it through the world. And what you see here is that Judas had an enslaving issue with what? Money, greed. And the devil went, 30 pieces of silver, bud. Do you know what you could buy with that? Apparently you can buy a piece of land because that's what they did with it after he gave it back. Then the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but, well, this is Jesus talking, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. If you were sitting in a room and somebody said, you know, you're going to do such a bad sin that it would be better for you that you were not born, would you take that to heart? (laughs) You'd hope so, wouldn't you? I mean, Jesus said that while he was sitting there. Then Judas, who was betraying him, said, Is it I? All of the disciples appear to have said that, or or quite a few of them. There appears to be a conversation. Is it I? I mean, he just said, somebody's going to betray me. And they went, Boy, I hope I don't do that. I hope I don't do that. And he says, Is it I? And he said, You said it. How much more specific of a rebuke can you get? Jesus answered and said, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And that was the way they would eat. They would dip in a gravy like, similar to what you had with fufu, that type of sauce on top of them. They would dip in that with the bread and then they would eat it. Jesus said, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas. I mean, he said that publicly. What are the other disciples thinking? What is Judas thinking? Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him and Jesus said, What you do, do quickly. And while he was still speaking, this, now they finished the dinner, they've gone out. They're out in the garden. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. They arrested Jesus. Then Judas, seeing he had been condemned... I don't know what Judas thought was going to happen to Jesus. Okay, Maybe he thought Jesus would just kind of walk through the crowd like he had done on other occasions. But something happened that he was not expecting. And he saw that he'd been condemned and he was remorseful. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he went out and hanged himself. (sighs) 
Why didn't Judas stop? When Judas was in the early ministry of Jesus, the early time, I mean, they were together approximately three years. We don't know, let's say it happened a year into the ministry when the woman came and this episode about the money and but apparently he'd been taking money out of the box. And somehow later, when John wrote the gospel, he came to understand that's what had been going on. Why didn't Judas stop? He didn't stop because sin is enslaving. Sin isn't controlled. It controls. We have got to get this through our mind. And it's the same for the Christian. It's, I should say it's similar for the Christian as it is for the non-Christian. The difference is the non-Christian can't choose to say no. Now I know that flies in the face of a lot of doing good that goes on in the secular world, but even good deeds can be done from prideful motives. And even good deeds can be done with a bitter heart. The unbeliever cannot choose to avoid sin. The believer can choose, but the temptation to enter into sin because we think we can control it. That foolishness is the same in the believer and in the unbeliever. Sin isn't controlled, it controls. There are so many voices in our American society which believe that such a thing as, uh, that there is... There are many voices in our American society that are saying, look, Christian, there's no such thing as an enslaving sin. Don't put your burden of belief on the African. Let them be. Let them. This is the way they've done for hundreds or thousands of years. Let them have their culture. And it happens at a place that's a lot closer than Africa to us here in Ferndale. There's a whole nation here in our backyard, and people say, it's their culture. It's not their culture. It's the sin that enslaves. But we're so overrun with sin that we can't tell. Our society says, let them be free. Let them not have any restraint of your moral spirituality. Something similar happened back in the 60s in regard to sexuality. The predominant attitude began to be, and still is today, stop telling us what's right and wrong. Get your laws out of my bedroom. Let us be free to love as we please. And that cry for freedom from restraint has spread to virtually all areas of life. Last night on the news, they, there was a videotaped confrontation between a news photographer and an anarchist. The anarchist had been part of a parade of anarchists or a, a demonstration. And an anarchist, if you don't know the term, means they believe in no law. And so they're going down the street in Olympia, and they're mad at this photographer because while they were demonstrating, a news photographer took a picture of the news and put it in the newspaper, and the police used that to convict those people who broke windows. And they're mad at him because he should not take pictures in such a way that shows their face. And he says, now, now let me get this right. You think it's okay to go down the street, to throw paint, to throw rocks, to do these things. 
And when I take a picture of you in public, I'm wrong. And the guy hemmed and hawed and stemmed and, you know, uh, uh, and tried to express himself in some way. But that's what he thinks. Let me be free. Don't put any restriction on me. But the problem is, that kind of freedom is enslavement because sin is enslaving. Why does a congressman cheat on his wife through cyberspace and then lie about it for two weeks? Why does he do those things repeatedly? Why do any number of highly placed visible public officials carry on what the secular world calls risky behavior? You know your job's on the line. Don't you at least value your paycheck? And you think, what's wrong with them? And you listen to the pundits on the radio and they go, they got to be mentally ill. No, they're enslaved in sin. Why do people... Why do so many people begin drinking and drugging with the absolute certainty that they can control their behavior? (laughs) Scott, I hope you don't mind if I come and ask you, did you think you were in control? (laughs) But, But pretty soon you find out you're not in control. Because sin is enslaving. It's not the drugs that are enslaving, folks. It's the sin. It's the sin that's enslaving. Why does a child lie to their parents over and over and over? Why does a parent abuse their child over and over and over? Because sin is enslaving. I keep a mousetrap handy. I keep a rat trap handy. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say that every once in a while, something, when I used to have dog food in the, in the garage, every once in a while there would be a hole in the bottom of the bag. I thought, doggone it, and I'd get that big old rat trap out there, and I'd lay it out. But I put something in it, didn't I? I put some kind of food in the thing, and I'd be victorious over the dirty rat. You know, that's what we think sin is. We think it's an empty mousetrap. Oh, I'm not tempted by that. That's not going to do anything for me. But the truth is, this is what's there. And all we see is the cheese. We go, oh, cheese, cheese, cheese. And you know what happens when you take the cheese. The mousetrap springs. Look at Romans chapter 6. I know you were beginning to say, why did he have me open my Bible? Romans chapter 6. Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? Some people will say, I don't present myself to sin. According to, according to, uh, according to Jesus, you can't help it. Because Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. If your heart is producing sin, you cannot help but get enslaved in sin. So the need of Africa is liberation from sin. Yeah, they need to be liberated from some 
political tyrants, I'm all for that too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I think Muammar Gaddafi spent far too much time on the throne. But what they really need is liberation from sin. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. When we were still without strength, I think it would be fair to say when we were still enslaved in sin, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified or made righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. A few years ago, there was an angry man with, uh, with a loaded gun. In fact, I think he had multiple guns who took people hostage in a courthouse. And there was an off-duty police officer who saw this happen, and he wasn't in uniform, obviously, but he saw this happening, and he inserted himself into the group of hostages uh, when it was starting to happen. And so he was there in the hosti- with the hostages, and at an opportune time, he overtook this man and disarmed him and, and uh, stopped uh, this crime from getting any worse. Before you even knew Christ, you were a hostage to sin, but Christ inserted himself in your place, and he died on the cross so that God punished him and didn't have to punish you, and he disarmed death for you so you could be free. And it is the death of Christ only that liberates us from the tyranny of sin. It's that death of Christ that we're going to remember when we have this Lord's Supper. He said, he said, when you see that piece of bread, I want you to think of my body. I went through untold physical suffering for you. I want you to remember my body. And he said, when you see the cup, I want it to remind you of blood. Yeah, that's kind of gross. But he said, I want you to remember what I went through for you. I shed my blood for you. And it's because of the body and blood of Christ that we have liberation. The only reason we're sending missionaries to Africa and not the other way around is because the gospel came to us first. And we've been liberated first, and because of that we have a responsibility excuse me, to send people back to help liberate others. And so turn to Romans chapter 10, please, and understand this, that the liberation of Africa will come through the Word of God. Romans 10, 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, the word saved we tend to think of it theologically, and so when we see the word saved, we, th- we just tend to think, go to heaven. And that's, that's true, but 
the word saved has the clear connotation of being in peril and being saved out of that peril. And the peril we were under was the enslavement of sin. But whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be pulled up out of the pit they're in. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who preach glad tidings of good things. He, he, God outlines this for us here, the process. And it's kind of hard to start this process because it's cyclical. In other words, I can't stand up here and preach the gospel if somebody didn't preach it to me. But he says the word gets preached and then uh, the word gets heard and then the word gets believed. But even before the preaching, there's a sending. Now the original sender was God the Father and Jesus was the missionary. And Jesus came and preached the truth. And people hear it and believe it, and confess it with their mouth, as the early part of the passage says, and they are liberated from sin. (sighs) However it happens, the liberation of individuals is always through the Word of God. It might come through an electrician, it might come through a preacher, it might come through an American or an African, but it always involves the Word of God. For several generations, we've been sending people to Africa to share the truth of God, of salvation through faith in Christ. Some will say, why is that our job? It's because God reached us (laughs) through somebody else and he wants us to reach others. When our friends, the Neufelds, first entered Togo about 30 years ago, they weren't the first missionaries in our fellowship to come in there. There were some others who had had started the work ahead of them. But back in that day, there were very few Christian believers in that country. Now there are many churches, not just because of our work, but because of other uh, evangelical missions as well. And so now the Togolese are reaching the Togolese as well. In fact, in the hospital, the absolute key to the effectiveness of the hospital ministry is the national evangelists. It's not missionaries that are the chaplains in the hospital that are going around sharing the gospel. Yes, the missionaries do that whenever they can. They pray with the patients. They certainly share Christ as they have opportunity. But it's the Togolese that are preaching the word now. And that's the way it should be. And someday, Lord willing... Maybe they won't need us at all. And we can turn our attention on some place like Mongolia where there's not too many Christians. Wouldn't that be something? Wow. When Iola went to Africa, when you went up north in Ghana, very few Christians. Very, very few. Now there's many. None. None. So she went up, Ghana is right next to Togo, you can look it up on the map, and she went in, really in a place that's about equal in uh, latitude with, uh, with Mongo. No Christians. Now, 
We've had the pastor of one of those churches here, remember, a couple years ago. And boy, he's got a big church and they're building more churches and they're reaching people and starting a Christian school and they're going crazy. The liberation from sin is what this worship activity is about. And the liberation from sin is what missions is about. We don't go to Africa because we're better than the Africans. We're not. We're exactly the same. We're all sinners before a righteous God. But we go to Africa because we are the same. Because we know the, the beauty and the blessing of knowing Christ. When Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, he took bread and broke it and gave it to the disciples, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and gave thanks, drink of it all, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Christ has asked us to remember his suffering his beating, the insults, the false accusation. He's asked us to remember him by doing this. And he's asked us to remember him by going out there as well. Whether it's one block or halfway around the world. When our daughter Molly lived in Switzerland, we had the chance to go visit her and took her to a store to buy her a birthday present, and we got talking to the uh, store clerk who was from France. And we were talking about international relations. <laughs> Pastoral detente, I guess you'd call that. No, we're just kind of comparing notes, you know. I know there's a common anti-American sentiment that seems to be in Western Europe. I don't, you know, I don't live there, so I don't know. But we're kind of talking about that. And this lady said... Not everybody thinks that way. We remember what you did for us. Do you remember what Jesus did for you? That's what this is about. And that's what missionary work is about. It's about saying, Christ died for me on the cross. How can I do less than worship him and try to share him with other people? Let's bow in prayer. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to ask you today, is there somebody here who, who has never been liberated from their sin, who has never come to faith in Christ and become a true believer? Maybe you've understood better today what God wants to give you I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or walk the aisle. I'm going to ask you to say right now, God, I believe in Christ. I know I'm a sinner. I want your liberation. And I want to worship you with a true heart. Maybe you're a believer here today. You know, you've got to be ready as a believer, to receive the Lord's Supper, which means you've got to be right with your liberator. Can you come with a true heart saying, I appreciate what you've done, and, and I am going to put the sin away from me, and I am going to 
work to live for you as you deserve, I remember what you did for me. Heavenly Father, may that be true. May there be true worship here today through faith in you, through obedience to you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.